Jeremiah chapter 39, we'll read verses 1 and 2. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all of his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. For forty years, Jeremiah had proclaimed the word of the Lord to Judah and uh, had received uh, no response as he called on the nation to repent, to turn to the Lord, to obey the Lord's revealed will. And while there were times of something of a religious revival, it was very superficial and no real turning from sin in-depth repentance, and uh, he predicted that if they did not turn, that uh, the city would be taken. This was hard for them to believe, that God uh, would allow any foreign nation to take Jerusalem. They felt secure. Uh, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. We have the temple. Surely God will not suffer this. And even when the Babylonians came and carried on two different occasions uh, numbers of captives away, Daniel for one, Ezekiel for another, to Babylon, uh, and made uh, the nation a tributary, uh, yet the nation insisted uh, on its uh, continued rebellion against God and against the king of Babylon in spite of God's instructions to obey the king of Babylon. And uh, in its false sense of security and the false prophets kept proclaiming that soon Babylon was to be destroyed uh, and the yoke of Babylon broken. Finally, the stroke came, as Jeremiah had predicted, and we read of it here in the 39th chapter, the first two verses, when we're told the city was broken up after a siege of a year and a half by Nebuchadnezzar and his forces, the city is broken up. This is a very solemn thing, full of lessons for you and I and our nation, which is under siege. There are all types of sieges, and our nation is under siege. The first thing that we have here is the recording of the events immediately preceding the fall of Jerusalem. We have this in the 38th chapter, and the first thing that we have is the persecution of Jeremiah. He's been persecuted already, but now there's the effort to kill him. In verse 6, the... Ruling authorities, the nobles, the elite, come, and verse 6, they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon that was in the court of the prison. They let down Jeremiah with cords, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sunk in the mire. And he'll soon die of starvation or suffocation. Uh, The persecution of Jeremiah, God's prophet. Why? Uh, Well, uh, because of what Jeremiah was saying, what his message was. Even 
imprisoned in the uh, court there, he had been proclaiming his message of surrender, that they were to surrender to Babylon, that they were to go out. The people of the city were to go out under the forces outside and surrender, that this was God's will for them, his instruction through his prophet to them. In uh, verse 2, we have this, Thus saith the Lord, He that remaineth in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goeth forth to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey, and shall live. Thus saith the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. And that was his message. Now, why was he saying this? Well, he's going by an absolute, by a standard. His standard is God's revealed will. God has made this known to him as God's prophet. And that's his standard. He knows this is going to be offensive to the elite, uh, to the nobles. He knows this is going to sound like treason to them. But he is obeying God as he sounds this note. That's his reason for doing this. The position of the princes, or the nobles, in verse 4, Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death, for thus he weakeneth the hands of the men of war that remain in the city, and the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. They say this is treason. It's undermining the nerve of those who defend the city. Uh, let him be put to death. Their basis of operation was expediency, what seems to be best under the circumstances. They had no absolute in the sense of, of God's word and God's will. Their absolute was what's best under the circumstances, an arbitrary absolute that they had chosen for the time being. And as Francis Schaeffer says in his book, How Then Shall We Live? And we've been showing the movie based on the book, the movies, in the Sunday school. He says, No truly authoritarian government can tolerate those who have a real absolute by which to judge its arbitrary absolutes and who speak out and act upon that absolute cannot be tolerated. A government that is acting by arbitrary absolutes cannot tolerate Christians who have another standard that they're going to act by and in time will persecute under the right circumstances those who act by God's absolutes. So in Jeremiah's persecution, see your own prophesy. Schaefer goes on to say in his book, How Then Should We Live? In ancient Israel, when the nation had turned from God and from his truth and commands as given in Scripture, the prophet Jeremiah cried out that there was death in the city. He was speaking not only of physical death in Jerusalem, but also a wider death, because Jewish society of that day had turned away from what God had given them in Scripture. There was death in the polis, 
that is, death in the total culture and the total society. In our era, sociologically, man destroyed the base which gave him the possibility of freedoms without chaos. Humanists have been determined to beat to death the knowledge of God and the knowledge that God has not been silent, but has spoken in the Bible and through Christ. And they have been determined to do this even though the death of values has come with the death of that knowledge. We see two effects of our loss of meaning and values. The first is degeneracy. Think of New York City's Times Square, 42nd and Broadway. If one goes to what used to be the lovely Calverstrat in Amsterdam, one finds that it too has become equally squalid. The same is true of lovely old streets in Copenhagen. Pompeii has returned. The marks of ancient Rome scar us. Degeneracy, decadence, depravity, a love of violence for violence' sake. The situation is plain. If we look, we see it. If we see it, we are concerned. But we must notice there is a second result of modern man's loss of meaning and values which is more ominous and which many people do not see. The second result is that the elite will exist. Society cannot stand chaos. Some group or some persons will fill the vacuum. An elite will offer us arbitrary absolutes, and who will stand in its way? We might suggest that the silent majority that we heard so much about will stand in its way. And he says, I believe the majority of the silent majority, young and old, will sustain the loss of liberties without raising their voices as long as their own lifestyles are not threatened. And since personal peace and affluence are so often the only values that count with a majority, politicians know that to be elected, they must promise these things. Edward Gibbon, in his decline and fall of the Roman Empire, said that the following five attributes marked Rome at its end. First, a mounting love of show and luxury, that is, affluence. Second, a widening gap between the very rich and the very poor. This could be among countries in the family of nations as well as in a single nation. Third, an obsession with sex. Fourth, freakishness in the arts masquerading as originality, and enthusiasms pretending to be creativity. Fifth, an increased desire to live off of the state. It all sounds so familiar, says Schaefer. We have come a long road. We're back in Rome. We see the persecution of Jeremiah, the reason for this. It's interesting to see the position that the king takes in this. He vacillates back and forth. In verse 5, when the nobles come to him and want to put Jeremiah to death, then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand, for the king is not he that can do anything against you. He says, Allah don't approve, but I can't stop you. Weakness. He vacillates back and forth. In the 37th chapter... He called Jeremiah out of prison, 
And he asked him, he said, Is there any word from the Lord? He believes in God in a sense, and yet he doesn't have the courage of his convictions. He's, he hasn't followed the absolutes and acted on them, and now he's vacillating and weak. He's lost his base. We see the persecution of Jeremiah, the intervention by Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian eunuch in the king's house there, a servant in the king's house. In verse 7 of chapter 38, Now when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. The king then sitting in the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went forth out of the king's house and spake unto the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon. He is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for there is no bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he died. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him. He went to the house of the king under the treasury and took out thence old cast clouts and rotten rags and let them down by cords into the dungeon uh, to Jeremiah. And he said to Jeremiah, Put these old rags under thine armholes, under the cords. And Jeremiah did so, and they drew Jeremiah up with the cords, took him out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. You notice the basis that this, not son of Abraham, but Gentile, an Ethiopian, you notice the basis he acts from? He acts, he says, it is evil what they've done. There's an absolute, there's a right, there's a wrong, they've done wrong. And second, he says they've acted against God's prophet, Jeremiah the prophet. He's acting in faith. He's trusting the Lord. He has a solid base of absolutes to decide what's right and what's wrong. He trusts God and acts when not a single uh, countryman, not a single Jewish man comes forward to the defense of Jeremiah. This Gentile comes forward acting on trust in God and on his knowledge of right and wrong from the Word of God. He says, this is evil. I never read uh, this story without thinking of the picture it is of the situation that I was in before I became a Christian. In that dungeon, in that mire, no way out, doomed because of my sin to hell, no way to save myself, and uh, someone acted to save me. Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus didn't just let down cords into the dungeon and pull me out. He came down himself and took my place and underwent the punishment due to me and lifts me up. Of course, I have to respond. I have to put the cords under my arm. I have to put my trust in Jesus Christ as the one who died for this guilty sinner. And I have to surrender my will to him, turn from doing my own will and make him my Lord. But this is such a picture to me of salvation as we 
are absolutely mired down in our own sin, in the guilt of it, in the strength of it, and Christ comes and lifts us out and saves when we put our trust in him. What a picture. We see the persecution, the intervention by Ebed-Melech, the revelation from the Lord to the king at this point. Verse 14, Then Zedekiah the king sent and took Jeremiah the prophet unto him, and they said, I will ask thee a thing, hide nothing from me. Jeremiah says to him in verse 17, Thus saith the Lord, If thou wilt assuredly go forth into the king of Babylon's princes, then thy soul shall live, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and thou shalt live in thine house. But if thou wilt not go forth to the king of Babylon's princes, then shall this city be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and thou shalt not escape out of their hand. Here's the word. Here's the absolute. Here's God's will. What will he do? Zedekiah the king said unto Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the Jews that have fallen to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand, and they mock me. Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver thee. Obey, I beseech thee, the voice of the Lord, which I speak unto thee. So it shall be well with thee, and thy soul shall live. But if thou refuse to go forth, this is the word the Lord has showed me. He cannot act. He's lost his base. He has not followed God's word at all costs in the past, and he won't do it now. He's lost his base. The events leading up to the fall, and then the fall itself. In chapter 39, we've already read the occasion of it. In verses 1 and 2, this year and a half siege by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, then the wall falling as they break through the wall and the alien forces come pouring in. And the princes come and sit in the gate and uh, the city is taken. The description of it is given in more detail starting with verse 4. We have the slaying of the king's sons. It came to pass that when Zedekiah the king saw them, these kings who have come in, the princes and all the men of war, uh, that they fled and went forth out of the city by night by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls. And he went out the way of the plain. But the Chaldeans' army pursued after them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, where he gave judgment upon him. The king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. You read an interesting prophecy over in Ezekiel 12, 12. Ezekiel was one of the earlier captives who had gone into captivity. And he's preaching and prophesying to the captives there in Babylon concerning the fact that in spite of all of their beliefs that the city is going to fall. They won't believe him. And he acts it out. He, he builds a little city and he lays on his side uh, and uh, he won't eat, depicting this famine and so on. And he, he builds a little 
forces and uh, battering rams coming against the city. And then at the appropriate day, he breaks through the city and he takes the people represented by straw and he cuts some of them with a sword and he burns others. And here's what he says as he's acting all this out, miles and miles away, what's taking place. He prophesies to them like this in Ezekiel 12, 12. And the prince that is among them, that's Zedekiah, uh, shall bear upon his shoulder in the twilight. He'll go out of the city bearing some things on his shoulder in the twilight. He shall dig through the wall to carry out thereby. He shall cover his face that he shall not see the ground with his eyes. My net, God speaking, my net also will I spread upon him. And he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, but he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Why won't he see it? Well, we find out. They put out his eyes when they took him. So uh, here's the uh, blinding and binding of Zedekiah, the... uh, Burning of the houses is described in verse 8 of chapter 39 of Jeremiah. The Chaldeans burned the king's house, the house of the people, and break down the walls of Jerusalem. An ancient city's protection was its walls, and when they broke down the walls, it could no longer be used as a stronghold. Uh, The Egyptians might come and take it as a stronghold. They break down the walls. We're told in Lamentations 5.11, they ravished the women in Zion. And uh, the carrying away captive of the remnant in verse 9 says the captain of the guard carried away captive into Babylon the remnant of the people. And we're told over in Second Chronicles there were 745 people left that are carried away captive. And he leaves the poor of the land to keep the land from returning to uh, just uh, jungle and so on. He leaves the poor of the land there to till the ground. And we are also told in uh, Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 36, uh, 18 and 19, that they burned the temple and they took the vessels of the temple to Babylon. So here's the destruction of the city, of its walls, of the king's house, of the temple, the blinding of the king, the killing of his children. What a terrible thing, the ravishing of the women. That's what it's like when a nation falls or worse today. If you've kept up with what's happened in Vietnam or in Cambodia. And the reason for this, why did the city fall? You say, well, they were overcome by a stronger military power. Truth. How does that apply to us? Reading uh, General George Keegan Recently retired, the head of the Air Force Intelligence Observations, he says, by every criteria used to measure strategic balance, that is, damage expectancy, throw weight, equivalent metatonnage, or technology, I'm unaware of a single important category in which the Soviets have not established a significant lead over the United States. Dr. William Van Cleve director of the Strategic Security Studies Program at the University of Southern California, a consultant of the Department of the Defense and the CIA, a member of the delegation to the first SALT talks, 
strategic arms limitations, says, I see no more serious problems facing the U.S. today, whether domestic or international, than those being posed by the Soviet military buildup, unrestrained by Western concepts of stability and mutual deterrence, or by any theory of limitations such as how much is enough, but rather guided by an open-ended, intense, and determined pursuit of strategic superiority to the maximum extent feasible. In fact, I've grown increasingly concerned that we are rapidly passing the point in timing of an American response to Soviet strategic programs. If there is to be an adequate response sufficient to prevent the greatest threat to the security of the United States in its history, that response must be made now and with determination. They were overcome by superior military power. That's true. Or you could say they fell because of the siege, they, uh, the pressure of the siege, a long siege. They actually were told uh, in chapter 52 that it was when they ran out of bread that uh, the, uh, they can no longer resist, the wall is broken through, and so on. A long siege is the cause. Well, we are under siege, as we say now, again to quote from... Schaefer, he mentions the pressure uh, that uh, is on our society through any number of the things that are taking place, from shortage of supply to economic inflation and so on. He says, remember from the first chapter, the little Roman bridge that would stand when people walked over it would, would break under the weight of a truck. If further economic recessions come, if fear of the loss of personal peace and prosperity increases, if wars and threats of wars intensify, if violence and terrorism spread, if food and other resources in the world become ever scarcer, and all of these are more than possible, then the trend is speeded up as these things come upon people who have only the values of personal peace and affluency, which are the values of the majority of Americans today. They will crush them as a six-wheel truck will crush the little bridge. So we can say it fell because of the siege. But the real reason that Jerusalem fell was the judgment of God on the nation. The real reason is brought out in many passages, but Second Chronicles chapter 36 is a good one, where in verse 12, uh, Jer uh, the chronicler speaks about the king Zedekiah, and he says, He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. He rebelled against the king Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen. What are we doing in our country? What did I read about the ABC Network putting on television this fall, soap. What did the paper say about 
the makeup of that program. All the abomination of the heathen uh, and uh, polluted the house of the Lord. What are we doing in America when we ordain homosexuals? Which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of his fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He called and called and called for them to turn. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees. Why did the nation fall? It turned from its base. It departed from God's absolutes and its obedience to God, its walk with God. It wouldn't listen to his messengers. That's why it fell. The holy God acting with that culture according to his character. The, you see the occasion, the description, the reason. It's interesting to note the protection of Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech in the fall. In uh, verse 11, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look well to him and do him no harm. And in reference to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, God sent uh, Jeremiah to him with a word, Verse 17, I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men whom thou, of whom thou art afraid. I will surely deliver thee. Thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. Now, God doesn't guarantee any of us that when America goes under, if it does, that we're going to be protected and we won't be hurt. You think any Christians were hurt in Cambodia? You better believe they were terribly persecuted. You can read the letters. You can hear the stories of those who clawed their way out. Uh, certainly, God hadn't guaranteed. We are, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. That's part of it. But in this particular situation, he did protect Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech. And he takes note of those who walk with him. And in many ways he blesses, whether or not it's from specific, by specific deliverance. We have the events leading up to the fall, the fall itself, the lamentation of that fall you find in the entire book of Lamentation as Jeremiah weeps over what has taken place. And it's one of the most moving books in all of Scripture, the the weeping of Jeremiah at what has taken place. He says in the third chapter of Lamentations, the 48th verse, Mine eye runneth down with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Mine eye trickleth down and ceaseth not without any intermission as he weeps over what's taken place. Yet even so, uh, he speaks of Trust in the Lord, and that God is faithful, and God is merciful. Verse 21 of that same third chapter of Lamentations. This I'll recall to mind, therefore have I hope. 
It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 31, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, Yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Jeremiah wasn't the only one weeping. God was weeping. He doth not afflict willingly. You remember Jesus, God incarnate? The next time Jerusalem was to be destroyed... Some 600 years later, he weeps and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, and ye would not. Therefore, your house is left unto you desolate. God was weeping also. He doesn't rejoice when he has to judge. The application of all of this to you and me and to our nation, we've seen as we've gone along, but Schaefer sums up something like this. He says there are two alternatives. In such circumstances, it seems there are only two alternatives in the natural flow of events. First, imposed order where an elite takes over and enforces its arbitrary absolutes on the others. Or second, our society once again affirming that base which gave freedom without chaos in the first place, God's revelation in the Bible and his revelation through Christ. We have seen in the previous chapters many of the implications of an imposed order. But rather than throwing up our hands and giving in, we should take seriously the second alternative. Christian values, however, cannot be accepted as a superior utilitarianism, just a means to an end. It means the acceptance of Christ as Savior and Lord, and it means living under God's revelation. This second alternative means that individuals come to the place, individuals come to the place where they have this base, and they influence the consensus, the majority. Such Christians do not need to be a majority in order for this influence on society to occur. Schaefer says the way out, God willing, is that that committed hardcore of Christians within the nation make their influence so felt that they bring about a consensus that returns the nation to its moral absolutes, even though a great majority of the nation has not yet really turned to Christ and been converted. Yet, we can return to that base as individuals make their influence felt. For right, for God's absolutes, for God's standards, 
What's the way out? The way out is intercession, number one, like Abraham interceded for Sodom. Let's pray for our country. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Intercession. Praying. That's first. Humiliation, humbling ourselves, turning from our wicked way. We are part of those who don't want our lifestyle to serve. We are part of those who, for the sake of maintaining our affluency and our peace, are compromising. And we need to correct that and make it felt. Intercession, humiliation, evangelization. Spreading the gospel within our nation, changing men's hearts. It's only as hearts are changed that we make an impact. Changing men's hearts through telling them of Jesus Christ and his salvation. The determination, well, not only evangelization of our nation, but evangelization of the world, because that's God's command to his church. And as you send missionaries to the far-off, unreached areas of the world, you're doing something patriotic. wouldn't matter whether it's patriotic because it's God's will, but you are doing something good for this nation. As you give your money to evangelize those far-off places, you're doing something patriotic for this nation. Determination to be that hardcore consensus, a uh, hardcore group that's going to make itself felt and bring about a consensus. That means really making our value system felt in our different professions. That means you doctors speak out against abortion. Don't give in to the pressures in your profession. That means you businessmen speak out against the wrong things in the business arena, in your profession, whether it's construction or whatever it may be. That means those in the unions speak out against wrong practices in unions. That means those in the ministry speak out against ordination of homosexuals and that kind of thing. Every sphere of life, women speak out against those who would twist values in your area and so on. Young person, take a stand for Christ in your high school and among your peer group. Make it felt. Make those Christian values felt. And you'll find as you do that you'll make an impact on a total group around you. You'd be amazed. You may well suffer persecution. That's part of it. But at the same time, you'll see a changing, an effect of salt and light. Of course, the beginning place is conversion. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you've never taken that rope that he's let down to you and slipped it under your armholes and trusted Christ to pull you up out of the miry clay. That's the beginning place. Schaefer says he named his book for the passage in Isaiah where, in Ezekiel, where God says to Ezekiel, I've set you for a watchman to the house of Israel to sound the trumpet when the enemy comes in. You sound the trumpet, why... 
You deliver your soul. If you don't, their blood is on your hands and so on. And he says to the uh, to Ezekiel, Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus ye speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? How are we going to make it? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? But if the wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live thereby. If you turn to God, receive his Son, you will live thereby. How then shall we live? By turning to Christ, walking with Christ. Let's rededicate ourselves to this as Christians, to making our influence felt in our society. And if you're not a Christian, you respond to Christ's invitation to be your Savior and Lord. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, if you've never received Jesus Christ into your life, you know that you're that man in the pit, that you need a Savior, that you cannot save yourself. Slip those cords under your arm right now. Pray in your heart. Lord Jesus, I do want you as my Savior. I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I trust you to forgive my sins, to lift me out of the miry clay. I surrender you as my master to change my life. Thank you. Amen.